This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Lord, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you that we can come and we can worship you in song. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and we can worship you as we engage with each other in this community. Thank you that we come and we worship you as we engage our minds with you, uh, as we think deeply about what it looks like to partner with you. Thank you that we can worship you as we, we generously trust you by giving our resources back to the good work that you're doing. So, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence today. Amen. Amen. Those baskets are being passed. You're dropping in your tithes and offerings. You can drop in your Start Here card. Hey, I want to highlight a couple things for you. I just wish that you could be a mouse in my pocket and hear some of the things that I get to hear on a regular basis. I wouldn't squish you, Teresa, I promise. Um, Here's just a few things that you need to know. This last weekend, we raised for our Lakota team. We have a missions team going to the Lakota reservation. We, we've raised more money than we ever have for a Lakota team to go. That's super exciting. Oh, okay, I know, I know. Yeah, I know. okay. Your hands are going to get tired, but that's okay. You can clap. Second, you can clap. Second thing is, we raised almost $4,000 in our games for grown-ups to send students to camp this summer. That's super exciting. Here's something. In the last eight weeks, we have baptized 26 people in our church. That's pretty awesome. And I say that because we have four to six more people who are getting baptized today at the end of our service, which is really, really exciting, including, including, hold on, hold on, including, we've got a grandfather who's baptizing his granddaughter today, which, okay, listen, if you usually hold it together for baptisms— you're going to lose it today. I just want to warn you, so get ready. And I, here's what I love about that. The church is called to be this multi-generational gathering. And when I see grandparents baptizing grandchildren, that is a beautiful picture. So uh, some of you maybe are here today and you weren't planning on getting baptized, but somewhere in this process, you're just going to think, boy, that's me. I want to get baptized. I want to, I want to identify with Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And how we do that is we have this water here, and you would go in and we take you under, representing you're dying to your old life by yourself. And then we raise you out of the water, which represents being raised to new life with Jesus. And if you've never been baptized, at the end of our time together, during our, our worship at the close, we're going to invite you to come forward and be baptized. It's going to be a really, really special time. One last thing, and then I, I need to start probably preaching, but I feel like there's just too much to share. Uh, I had a dream realized this morning right before church started. Uh, we are a church in Petaluma. Petaluma is a largely white community. I love Petaluma. I'm a largely white guy, um, so it, it's okay. But here's what I've been praying about. When I look at the picture in Revelation, the book of Revelation, about heaven, heaven is a multi-ethnic community. It's this, it's this all languages and nations and tribes coming together. And so we've been praying and doing a little bit of teaching about what it looks like to be a multi-ethnic community for the first time, maybe at least in my tenure as our senior pastor, for the first time I heard someone, a guest, come in today and say, man, I just love the fact that there are um, a multi, there's a multi-ethnic community here in this church. I had never actually heard that. For, for someone to recognize, they say, compared to some of the other churches that I've seen, this is a beautiful expression, and it just made my heart so happy. So, church, I don't know. God's doing something and doing something in this. I love it. I love it. Yeah, okay. Save some because the sermon's going to be good. You're going to want to clap later. Um, hey, let me ask you, 
How many of you have started coming, and I'm not going to call on you, don't worry, but I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have started coming to New Life at some point in the last three years? Sometime in the last three years, keep your hands up. I want to see. In the last three years, uh, New Life has become your church home. That's, that's a decent, yeah, that's you. Yeah, you, yeah, that's good. There are three, yeah, that's us. Good. If you started coming to New Life in the last three years, uh, you might not know this, or maybe you've heard bits and pieces, but um, our senior pastor who founded this church, Ron Hunt, started this church almost 20 years ago. He and his wife Monica and a group of people, they gathered together and they said, okay, we want to engage with God and we want to give ourselves completely to this community to reach people in this city. And they worked and prayed and partnered and gave and they started this church and it was beautiful. And then about nine years ago, they brought me on staff uh, as one of our many pastors, but with an eye to sometime transitioning me into the lead role and him out of that lead role. And about three and a half years ago, we made that transition. And here's what I love about Ron. He had the foresight to think how we do this really matters. Because when most churches do this, from the founding pastor to whoever's next, they have about an 80% turnover rate in their church. That means 80% of the people who were there are gone. And the fact that maybe 20% of you raised your hand when I asked that question means that 80% of you stayed, which is pretty amazing. So Ron was thinking, how are we going to do this well? And one of the things that Ron uh, in, his, in his wisdom and insight, said was, we need to get a consultant to help us make this transition well. And the consultant was fantastic. And I was thinking about consultants because the consultant had more insight into church transition than we did. The consultant had more wisdom than we did. And we really wanted to know the consultant's advice. But there were a few things the consultant said that we just knew would not work here at New Life. And that's the great thing about consultants is that they're wiser than us, we want their advice, but we pay them. And part of the reason we pay them is so that we can ignore their advice when we don't like it. And that's true in church consulting, that's true in business consulting, that's true in marriage consulting. Why do you pay a counselor? So they're wiser than you, they're wiser than you. You want their advice, but there's, there's some... I don't know if I'm going to listen to that. I don't know if that will work in our unique situation. Now, we're in the series called The Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. And in this series, Pastor Ron and I have been working hard to zoom out and not talk about a specific topic or a specific theme, like in life, marriage or parenting or, or business or leadership or generosity. We've been, we've been striving to get below the surface and teach something differently. We're trying to teach how to engage with God personally in a way that helps me grow spiritually. So I'm trying, we're trying to teach this like deep concept that actually impacts everything else we talk about in this church, which is how to engage with God in such a way that it helps me to mature in my faith. And what I want to talk today about is is cosmic consulting. Because the truth is, God, based on our definitions of a consultant, God knows more than us, right? If you don't think so, um, God knows more than us. And generally speaking, we want God's advice. And if church tradition uh, holds, because groups like Barna Research do this, um, at least 2% of us give good money to God every week. So that's, that was funny. That was a joke. 
but it's true, but it was also a joke. So we pay God, right? Like we think I'm paying God. She liked it. But let's, let's think about this for a second. If we're not careful, God knows more than us. We, generally speaking, want God's advice. Many of us give money to the church, and we were raised thinking, well, we're giving money to God. If we're not careful, God can actually fall in the spot of a cosmic consultant. Here's what I mean. Then we can find ourselves thinking, well, I like what God says right here. I'm going to take that. I don't really like what God says here. It doesn't really fit my stage of life. It doesn't really fit what I'm thinking about. I think I'm going to leave that behind. But here's the problem. God does God really well. God is the only one who's ever been able to pull God off. But God doesn't do consulting work. He just doesn't. He never has. He never will. In fact, if we invite God to the boardroom of our life and invite God in onto the board table as a consultant, you know what God will do? God will leave the boardroom because God don't do consulting work. I had poor, poor Betty. The last time I used pro- improper grammar, Betty, who's 90, said, Kevin, Kevin, I just, you just kept killing me when you were saying that thing the wrong way. I said, Betty, that was on purpose, and I'm sorry. And we don't use phrases like killing when we get into that stage of life. So please, Betty, don't tell me I'm killing you. That would just break my heart. But strike that from the record. But I want to talk today about the fact that God does not do consulting. And anytime we make God a consultant, it does not go well for us. And I want to look at a proverb. And, and proverbs are this, this ancient sayings. They're found in the Old Testament of the Bible. It's a gathering of, of uh, 31 ancient sayings that are like generally speaking. That's what you could say. Generally speaking, if you do this, this will happen. What the author tries to tell us is, if you want to hedge your bets in life, if you want to hedge your bets financially, in your marriage, in your job, in your friendships, in your, in your vocation, in your calling, with your kids, if you want to hedge your bets in life, do what I say, and generally speaking, this is what will happen. That is a proverb. And I love what the author of Proverbs says about this concept of full engagement or partial engagement with God. Notice what he says. It's in Proverbs chapter 4. So it's in your teaching notes if you want them. It's up on the screens. If you've got a tablet or a smart device, you can pull that up as well. It says, the path of the righteous. Righteous is just a big word that means someone who, who knows what God says, who engages with God on why God says it, and, and lives rightly or lives in right relationship with God because of it. So they know what God says. They've engaged with God enough to figure out why God is saying it. And then they live accordingly. Because the truth is, we can't just know what God says and do what God says. We have to know what God says, engage with God around it, if we want the fruit or the outcome of our life to be what we actually are hoping for. So he says, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun. Friends, it has been so nice that it's been hot. Praise Jesus for summer and the beach. It's like the morning sun shining even brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked, 
And those are people who simply know what God says and choose not to engage with God around it. But the path of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Last week we talked about blind spots. That in our lives, each of us has blind spots. Things that, um, just like a blind spot in a car, that we don't see. And actually, they are damaging to us, but we don't see them. It's not like we see it, say, I don't care about it, and we do it anyway. A blind spot is an area in our life where God says something, and we're just not there. We're not ready to engage with it, or we don't see it, and it could be causing damage in our life, but we aren't intentionally trying to disengage with God. It's just a blind spot. This is not that. This is actually knowing what God says, seeing it. It's right in front of us and choosing to say, I see it, but I don't agree with it, or I don't like it and I'm not going to do it. That is what the author's talking about when he says the righteous and the wicked. And there are two outcomes. For the righteous, the light that they have gets brighter and brighter and brighter. He uses the imagery of a sunrise. It starts off as, as dawn is breaking, and then the sun comes up, and we can see a little clearer, and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. The path of those who walk with God, who engage with him, get brighter and brighter and brighter. But the path of the wicked is like deep darkness. Think about those times when you were a kid laying up in bed and you put your hand in front of your face and you could not even see your hand in front of your face. It's like deep darkness to the extent that over time, the wicked don't even know what they're stumbling on. I remember when we first moved into our house, we've been there for about four years now. When we first moved into our house, uh, that weekend, we moved in on a Friday on Sunday, and we hadn't unpacked boxes. You know what it's like when you've got two young kids. Landon, our son, was maybe two at the time, and Maddie was four, I think four years old. We move into the house on Friday. On Sunday, my birthday, we're standing outside those doors. I'm about to get up to preach, and Landon says, Daddy, I don't feel good. And then he proceeds to vomit all over me, just all over me, full on. So we, this is where community comes in. We call a dear friend uh, and say, can you take our son? He's sick, you know, chances are. They all got sick, too. I, I think their son has forgiven me, finally. But it took a while. He's giving me a thumbs up. Good, he's forgiven me. So Landon went home with the flu. That, uh, that next morning, Maria got the flu, or the stomach bug. Then the next, the next afternoon, our daughter Maddie, same thing, the stomach bug. That night, I got it. Here's the problem. None of us knew the layout of the house. So that night, as everyone's throwing up, we were just stumbling over everything. We anointed that house with an unholy anointing in every single room in the first three days. Because the way of the wicked is like walking through a house that you don't know and stumbling on things you can't even figure out. And there's a, a pastor and author who I really appreciate named Larry Osborne, and he talks about this principle or this idea as like a dimmer switch. Can you picture that in your minds? He says, this is the dimmer switch principle of faith, which simply says this. When we follow the light that God has given us, God reveals more light, more spiritual insight, more freedom. He turns the dimmer switch up. But when we don't follow the light that God has given us, the things we already know to be true, then we, increase, uh, we have increasingly less light. It's like a dimmer switch that goes up and down. And, and you've probably experienced this in your life. There have probably been times... When in one area of life, you said yes to God. Yes, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to engage with you. And in that season, it was like God was showing up all over the place. 
like, oh my gosh, God is just, he's moving all around me, not just in this area, but all over. And then there might have been other times in life where we said, no, God, I'm not going to engage with you on this topic, whether it's my, maybe it's my marriage or, or maybe it's something about work or the kids or generosity or seeing people who are missed in the rest of society. No, God, I'm not going to engage with you there. And then it's almost like God shuts off the faucet and we can't hear God speaking to us anymore. And we think to ourselves, well, God was speaking to me over here and he's not speaking to me over here anymore. And that's weird because I'm just not following him right here. But the truth is we're not compartmentalized beings. If we choose not to follow God here where we know what he's saying to do and we know why he's saying to do it, if we choose not to follow him here, more often than not, the dimmer switch goes down here and here and here because we are whole beings. I think the Eastern world gets this a little better than the Western world does. We like to compartmentalize things. We have work, we have sports, uh, we have friends, we have marriage, we have kids, we have money, and they're all in little compartments. And we think I can, I can say yes here and here and here and no here and here and here and that will be okay. But the truth is, and we know this by experience, if we say no here and here and here, it usually impacts here and here here. So the question becomes, uh, for us, because remember, our goal in this series is to learn how to engage with God on our own. How to engage with God. So that we're not just being spoon-fed by the pastor every Sunday. We are actually growing and maturing in our faith all week long. The question is for us, okay, so what do I do when I come up against something I don't agree with, I don't like, and I don't want to do? What do I do then? Because if we've made a case that it's not good to just say, well, I'm not going to deal with it, what, what are we supposed to do? To talk about that, I want to go back to one of my favorite psalms. And I taught on this about a year and a half ago, maybe, but it just seemed like it was worth revisiting. It's Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. And, and, and a psalm is like a poem or a journal entry or a letter. That's kind of the style with which they're written. They're songs, journal entries, letters, poems. And in this, the psalmist is talking about what to do with God when we don't actually like what God is saying to do. It starts off like this. I'm going to pick just certain things because there are over 100 verses. It starts like this. Blessed are those who keep God's statutes or his commands. Those who seek him. I want you to circle or underline seek him. Who seek him with all of their hearts. That word blessed means supremely happy, content, joyful. It goes beyond just situations of happiness. It's like a, no matter what life does, I just have this steady contentment and joy and happiness. That's, that's blessed or blessed. Are those who, and I love this, who seek him, who seek him. The author's primary interest is not in us following God's commands. It's in us learning how to seek after God. And the author says that God gives us his word to teach us that. He's going to talk about this over and over again, but, but here's the teaching note. The Bible is actually a, a guidebook, a guidebook designed to help us to get to know God. That's the goal of the Bible. It, it, it's a whole book of all of these letters, 66 different letters designed to help us get to know God and trust God so that we might someday follow God. It's not primarily a rule book. Otherwise, we could just learn the Big Ten, you know, the Ten Commandments, maybe a few extras, and be done. But that's not the goal of the Bible. Because you could learn the Big Ten. Shoot, you could learn all 613 laws in the Old Testament and never actually know God. You would just know a lot more laws. 
The goal of the Bible is to help us get to know God. And then following him is simply an outpouring of it. So the author says, blessed are those who seek after God, whose hearts are oriented towards him. The outpouring of that will be a relationship where we would want to follow. He goes on in verse 5 to say this about himself. This is confession time. See if you can't find yourself in his confession. Oh, I wish that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. I wish I wanted to do what you said I should do. That's what he's saying. You ever had that moment with God? It's like God says to do something, and I don't want to do it. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's going to be good. I just don't want to do it. The author says that we are predisposed to have moments like this in our life. And here's why. Based on who you are, gender, age, your race, how you were raised, where you were raised, your access to uh, social media, your access to global media, which news stations you watch, all of those things shape what I like to call our worldview. And our worldview, more often than not, shapes our view of God. Does this make sense? Now, ideally, our view of God would shape our worldview. But when we come to these moments where we don't actually agree with God, more often than not, it's not because you're a bad person or I'm a bad person. It's simply that our worldview, which is shaped by so many different factors, is impacting our view of God. And so the author just says it. He says, listen, I don't want to do everything God says to do. I just want to acknowledge that right now. And I think you and I have that same freedom. We can honestly admit that we're not going to like or agree with everything in the Bible. You ever heard your pastor say that to you? No. Like, no. What do we do? We come to church and we think someone should stand up and say, listen, all of God's laws and decrees are good and we should want to follow them all. No, I'm telling you, if you walk out of this church every single Sunday for a year and you don't disagree with something, I'm not doing my job or you're not thinking hard enough. I want to spark dialogue. I, that's one of my goals. I want to spark, I don't know about that. Because what's the point in engaging in this part of our worship service if you already agree with everything that's said? No, our worldview will actually take us in a different direction. Now, spiritual maturity comes with what we do with that. Spiritual maturity is the answer to what do I do when I don't want to do what God says to do? If you answer that, you you will grow in your faith. Notice how the author answers that. He says, open my eyes. Open my eyes, God. Open, open my spiritual eyes. Open my eyes so that I might see the wonderful things of your law. Because the truth is, God, I am a stranger on this earth. So please don't hide your commands from me. See, the author assumes that when he doesn't line up with God, there's something that he is missing. Not something that God is missing. Something that he's missing. So he says, God, I don't always agree with you. And when I don't agree with you or don't like what you have to say, open my eyes so that I can see how this is good news. How is this good news for me? How is this good news for those around me? How is this good news for the world? Because oftentimes things that, from our perspective, don't seem like good news when God says them, it, it is always only for the good of people. 
always only for the good of people. God is not a hateful God. God is not a vengeful God. God is not a racist or sexist God. So when God says something that we don't line up with, we can assume that there's something that we're missing there, some good in there that we just don't see. I said it like this in the notes. Whenever we run up against something that we do not agree with in the Bible, we would be best served. I said we need to, but that's because I hadn't had enough coffee yet. So I'll just say we would be best served because you really don't need to, but you'd be best served if you did, to press into that thing with curiosity and ask the why question. God, why are you saying this? I don't know about you, but sometimes my default when I don't like something God says is to flip the page. Here's what I'm realizing. In those places where I want to flip the page, I would be better served if I stayed in that page for a little bit longer. Or if I zoomed out and asked some questions. Okay, God, how does this thing fit in with the overall story that I know of the Bible? Uh, I just started reading a book this weekend that I'm really enjoying. It's a parenting book, because I don't know about you, but parenting is not easy. Like, when my parents did it, it looked so easy, and I couldn't figure out why they kept getting it wrong. Uh, now I'm trying to do it, and it, it does not seem as easy as when they had to do it. So I'm reading this parenting book, and, and I'm going to try to get the title right. It's called How to Stop Whining, Complaining, Arguing, and Bad Attitudes in You and Your Kids. Seems brilliant. So I'm sitting at the beach on Friday away from my kids, because that's the best time to read a book like that. And they, they talked about something called the wise appeal. The wise appeal. And it's when your kids get to a certain stage that they, you want them to start making decisions. And so here's how the wise appeal works. And we've been trying to kind of implement this in the family, reintroduced it again as we've been reading this book. I'll say something to Maddie, my eight-year-old, that she does not like or agree with. Now, you can go one of two ways. One, we could just say, do it. I said it, do it. Ultimately, that will not produce in my daughter what I want. That will produce, if she does it, she'll have resentment towards her dad. Uh, she'll stuff her emotions down. It won't be good. So the wise appeal says this. If I say, Maddie, go clean your room, like everything off the floor, she can say, okay, dad, I will do that. Can I make a wise appeal? In which case, I can either say yes or no. Let's assume I say yes. Yes, you may make a wise appeal. She says, Dad, I understand that you want me to go clean my room, but I don't want to clean my room because I just got my Lego set out. Could I play with my Lego set for another hour and then clean my room? And then I can decide, yes, that's a good choice. No, we actually need to clean the room. We have other things to do. This is how the wise appeal works. Give me some sort of nod if you understand how. The, okay, good. Okay. Now take that to our Heavenly Father. God is our Heavenly Father. The whole reason a wise appeal works between parent and child is because my daughter is coming to the conversation assuming that I have a reason for saying the things I'm saying. And she's coming to the table assuming that it's a good reason. We are God's children. Did you know that we have that same freedom? We can make a wise appeal to God? Okay, God, I understand that you're saying this, but I don't really like it. I don't want to do that right now. I'd rather do this. God, can we talk about why you want me to do this thing? Why you say this thing in, in your word? Can we talk about that? That is the wise appeal. But it's all about our orientation or our draw towards God. 
Is our assumption that God is a cruel taskmaster waiting to just slam us? Or are we assuming that God really is a good father who wants to engage with his kids? Spiritually mature people know how to take this tension of I see it and I don't like it and I don't agree with it and then take it back to their heavenly father and say, God, I will do what you say. I will. Ultimately, I will. I want to follow you. I, I, ultimately, I trust you. But I don't get this or understand it or like it. Would you show me why? And this is where our engaging with God chart comes back into play. And I hope you're, like, I hope you have this memorized. I hope you're starting to think, like, why does this keep coming up? Because I want us to keep looking at this. This is where engaging with God is so important. God gives his thoughts. And let's assume right now you don't agree with it. So you have a lightning bolt right there. I do not agree with what you have to say, God. The next step is to go to him with a wise appeal. God, why are you saying this? And then those next three are just expressions of how we figure out the answer. We get into the Bible. We, we look in our, uh, in our concordance in our Bible or on your, on your app. You do a keyword search. And you try to figure out, God, why are you saying this? You talk to people, friends, people who love God. Maybe it's your life group. Maybe it's your ministry team. Maybe it's just a group of people you get coffee with every week. You say, hey, have you talked to God about this topic? You hear what they have to say about it. And then you just experiment. Hey, God, I'm going to try what you say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. In the process, we're told that God actually will partner with our, our nature, that thing inside of us, to want to do the things that God wants us to do. He will actually change our hearts so that we can obey with a good heart. This is what maturity looks like. This is what it looks like to take God out of consultant and put him into his rightful place. Remember, God does God really well. He just doesn't do consultant very well. I love the way the author ends this. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's the same idea that we heard in Proverbs. Those who follow God, God turns the light switch up. Those who don't, the dimmer switch goes down. Your word, God. And he's talking about um, what we've come to know as the Bible, although it was in a different form at that time. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The thing about lamps and lights in the ancient world is they only lit five, six feet around you. So you'd have to continually go back to the source to get more light. And the same thing is true with God. Spiritual maturity is about learning how to engage with God every day, to go back to the source, to go back to the source. And as we do, God gives us more and more light. God does not want you and I to live in darkness, stumbling around. God does not actually want you and I uh, to be like my family on move-in weekends, tripping over boxes and vomiting everywhere. That is not what God wants. That is disgusting. God wants to clear the path for you. God wants you to experience blessing, that joy, that contentment, that peace, that no matter what's going on around you is steady. It's steady. Here's how I know. And we're going to actually, we're going to move into our communion time right now and our baptism time right now. Woo! So I thought it'd be so cool to like use this to sit on Nobody sanded this thing for me. I just sat right on a big piece of wood. That hurts so bad. I'm not, I'm not lying. That really hurt. Remember that story told, I told last week about 
saying that word I shouldn't say. Look how much God has done in my life. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Transformation starts here. Transitionally speaking. When Jesus, when Jesus, this is how I know God wants to reveal himself to you. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a temple where God's presence was said to dwell. And in the center of that temple was this place called the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy place where God's presence was. In that spot, there was a big curtain that went around it. So no one could get in to God's presence, except for one priest, one time a year. We're told that when Jesus gave his life on the cross, when he died for our sins, that veil was torn in two and fell to the ground. That on a spiritual level, a very real thing was happening. That God's presence, which had been confined to one space that only a select few could engage with, God's presence was now free so that we could engage with God person to person every day. What a miracle it is. And when we take communion, we have a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice that Jesus said, this represents my body, which is given to you when I give my life on the cross. And the juice, he said, represents my blood, which is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can have this relationship with me, so that you can be forgiven by me and engage with me. And when we take the bread and the cup, Jesus says, remember my sacrifice and the gift that it is. So that we can come to God and engage with him every day, all the time, on any topic. And like a good father, he listens, and he partners, and he speaks, and he engages with us. So in just a second, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to go and receive communion as a way of honoring God and remembering the access that we have to our Heavenly Father. At that same time, I'm going to invite you to come up, because the other thing Jesus said was, anyone who is my follower, anyone who's a follower of mine, be baptized. Make a public declaration of this very personal, life-changing decision. Be baptized. Get into the water. Go under and represent that you died to that time when you lived by yourself and for yourself, and you rise up remembering that you're living with me and for me now. It's a holy and ancient expression of this deep faith that we have. And I know at least a couple of us are planning on getting baptized this morning, but maybe you're here and you've never been baptized and you think, I want to do that. Today is my day. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to be baptized. I want to express that publicly. I want to invite you. You can come and you can be baptized. We have a shirt for you to throw on over your shirt if you don't feel comfortable getting baptized in the clothes you're currently in. We have a towel for you. Uh, we have a photographer who will take pictures so that your family can see this really powerful thing. But I would invite you, come forward and get baptized. I'd be happy to baptize you. One of our other pastors would be happy to baptize you. If you've got someone who's been instrumental in your life, invite them up. Let them baptize you. And you don't need to come alone. Come with a group. Shoot, come with your whole row if you want to. Come on up and get baptized. All right, I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite us to take communion as the worship team comes and leads. And, and if you're ready to get baptized, come on forward. Don't wait. Now's your time. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we, that we have all access to you. Thank you, Jesus, that actually our lives are better when we move you out of consulting land and into the role that you hold, which is leader, Savior, just Heavenly Father, just the one who protects and guides and calls. 
So God, would you show us more and more in, in increasing areas of our lives what it looks like to engage with you so that we might experience with you the life that you've invited us into. For my friends who are being baptized today, Lord, thank you for this moment. Would it be a powerful expression of this time, this relationship that they have with you? Would it be one that they would always hold and treasure? And Lord, as we come together, for those of us who have been baptized, as we watch our friends get baptized, would it be a reminder of that life-changing encounter we had with you? For some of us many years ago, for some of us very recently, and would, would their expression somehow deepen our expression of faith and partnership? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.